Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BIOREPORT. That's deepdive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BIOREPORT, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Psychedelics have become an area of increasing investment in drug development activities as an emerging group of companies is working to develop these compounds as treatments for neurologic and psychiatric conditions. That's because of the ability of these drugs to target serotonin, which plays a critical role in the regulation of cognitive function, emotions, memory, and the sleep-wake cycle. Bright Minds Biosciences is developing a pipeline of psychedelics as the next generation of serotonin modulators to treat neuropsychiatric, seizure, and pain disorders by restoring serotonin activity to normal levels. We spoke to Gideon Shapiro, Vice President of Discovery at Bright Minds Biosciences, about the role serotonin plays in the health of the brain, why psychedelics have emerged as compelling therapeutics for a range of conditions, and the company's pipeline of drugs in development. Gideon, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Bright Minds Biosciences, psychedelics, and the company's efforts to develop a new generation of these medicines to treat mental health, pain, and other neurologic conditions. Uh, this is an area of increasing activity, one that's been popularized by books like Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. From a drug developer's point of view, what's happened to enable this activity? Is it a, a change in attitude towards these class of drugs, a, a growing understanding of the biology of these conditions, interest from investors, or, or something else? Well, I would say it's sort of all of the above, uh, actually. So... Uh, first of all, uh, there is a huge unmet medical need in mental health. Uh, it's a burgeoning uh, illness uh, generally. And, of course, depression is just 
a huge problem in our society today and it's only growing. And I think even COVID has exacerbated uh, the isolation uh, and, and <clears throat> instances of that and the severe need for better medications. Um, and essentially, up until recently, for, for at least for depression, there have been really no, no drugs that could treat major depressive disorder. Uh, the, the SSRIs, which everyone's familiar with, Prozac and that class of drug, really only can treat moderate depression uh, or mild depression even, and it's not very effective, leaving about 30% of patients with, with no treatment op options uh, for severe depression. And what's happened is with the recent approval of Spravato or it's uh, ketamine, which is an NMDA mechanism, it's a different mechanism of pharmacological action, that's really opened the door to realize, you know, there could be now medical treatments for severe depression and other severe neuropsychiatric disorders, which uh, is now followed by psychedelics, uh, was sort of happening in parallel, that uh, psychedelics uh, with some of the, the, the main, the new studies that were embraced by the people at Hopkins uh, have shown now that they can also be tremendously effective for major depressive disorders and, and PTSD so that really has opened the door now. The fact that there's such a medical need that's recognized, plus the destigmatization of psychedelics and, and these really pioneering research groups who really picked up the ball about 10 years ago and run with it and, and done these studies um, have really, really opened the way uh, for uh, sort of a sea change in in. Uh, looking at psychedelics now, not just as, you know, drugs of abuse, but as really powerful medicines. And so I think that, that really the, the combination of those two, plus the, uh, the science uh, of, of looking at these things, not as drugs of abuse, but as pharmacological agents with now, we know more about the pharmacology, uh, the mechanisms of action, uh, which in terms of real pharmaceutical drug design means there's a, there's a path. It's not just mystical. There's actually a scientific path to understanding how they work and using this first generation of psychedelics like psilocybin, but then advancing beyond that to new generations that are even better, safer, and can be used to really address millions of, of, of patients in a mainstream way. There's a, a certain sex appeal to taking these once illicit drugs like LSD and psilocybin and putting them to tackle conditions with large unmet medical needs. Do we need a new term other than psychedelics for these drugs? Should we be thinking them as serotonin regulators rather than psychedelics? Yeah, I think I think that <laughs> that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that will just happen. I think they'll be called they'll be called serotonin modulators or eventually probably some other acronym will come into favor uh, for them. And of course, the psychedelics themselves have been through this soul searching uh, nomenclature of should they be amphiogens or Greek names that relate to gods, uh, et cetera. Um, again, I, I don't like to get too caught up in that. All, all I care, all we sort of care about is does the medicine work? I'm not, we're not going to worry about, about the names. I think, again, if you have a great medicine and it treats, treats severe diseases, 
you know, the name will be secondary. The main thing is make a great medicine. If it works, the rest will follow. Well, maybe we should take a step back. What is serotonin and, and what's its function? So serotonin is a fundamental neurotransmitter. Um, so it's otherwise has another name that's more scientific, which is 5-HT, uh, meaning 5-hydroxytryptamine. That's the name of the chemical structure. And it's a fundamental neurotransmitter, not only in the brain, but in, in the whole body. So it relates to sero, uh, blood, and, and tonin, meaning constriction. It was originally really associated with vasoconstriction. Uh, and since then, uh, we've done a lot more molecular biology, pharmacology, and it's a fundamental neurotransmitter in the brain. And everybody knows it uh, for, for the SSRIs, which essentially means selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So uh, we all know that serotonin, or many people, is sort of the happy drug, that if you can, if you can increase serotonin signaling in the brain, uh, it's a way to treat mental health disorders with that class of drug. And the real breakthrough that, that's happened since then is there are many, many molecular subtypes of serotonin. So serotonin itself is a broad band, if you will, non-selective hammer uh, that affects all of these different receptors and signaling. And what we're able to do now with the modern molecular biology is understand all these different subtypes uh, of receptors that create these signals and, and target like a laser, essentially, uh, the, the targeting of these receptors for specific diseases. That's really the big breakthrough in the last 30 years since, since SSRIs were discovered. As a target, serotonin can have many different receptors. How well understood are these receptors, and are they all of interest, or are there only a, a handful that you're targeting within your pipeline? So uh, at Bright Minds, we're targeting one subclass called 5-HT2. So essentially you have anywhere from 5-HT1 all the way to, to 7, and each of those in turn have subtypes themselves. So there are actually you know, drugs on the market for, for 5-HT, as we know. Uh, you may know 5-HT3, for example, is a, is a target for antagonizing for nausea. If you're a cancer patient, that's a drug that's approved. So uh, they're already within this cl big family of drugs, drugs on the market. 5-HT2 is really interesting because that's what, that's what for, there are three subtypes of 5-HT2, and there's 5-HT2A, 2B, 2C. And what, psych what we know now from more recent research is for psychedelics or the psychedelic activity and you know, psychiatry applications, this 5-HT2A subtype is really what you want to selectively target uh, with the drug. And uh, the downside of 5-HT2 to date has been there's a very closely related subtype called 5-HT2B, which is located on the cardiac heart valves and is, is well known to cause cardiovalvulopathy, a toxicity that's been associated actually with lethal outcomes and has resulted in other drugs being pulled off the market as a, as a side effect. Uh, fenfluramine being the most famous of them, the diet drug fenfen uh, was pulled off the market once that was discovered that it was having that unselective action. So we are targeting that family and really making these, this class of psychedelic drugs selective for 5-HC2A, the current psychedelic generation is unselective. So psilocybin, LSD, they all hit this cardiotoxic 5-HC2B subtype, 
And so they have limited scope and, and can only be administered uh, in a very limited way. Uh, currently, only, one, only, only two administrations are used in clinical trials, and uh, the regulators will be very, paying very close attention and restricting uh, the use of those drugs within a very, uh, very safe framework. And so there's another subtype called 5-HT2C, uh, which has other applications. It's a non-psychedelic receptor, but has uses in pediatric epilepsies uh, just recently discovered, as well as other neuropsychiatric applications in, in impulse disorder. So as a company, we're focusing on this psychedelic class of drugs, 5-HT2A, uh, that have safety and selectivity that are selective versus the 5-HT2B. And then we've got this other portfolio uh, of drugs that we've inherited, essentially licensed from the University of Chicago. Our, our other co-founder, Alan Kosakowski, researched for, for 10 years in this field, and uh, we have a nice patented cl- class of new drugs for that uh, target. So that's really the name of the game. To We're trying to make safer drugs to, to reach the millions of patients uh, that can profit from these, uh, this, these medicines in that 5-HG2A2 subclass of serotonin targets the reason people have traditionally used these drugs from a historical perspective has been the hallucinatory effects in in the case of the conditions you're treating i imagine those effects would be considered unwanted side effects how linked to the therapeutic benefits are those aspects of the drugs and do you either through dose or design seek to eliminate that aspect of the drugs? So we believe, uh, and also from the historic experience with ketamine, that it it will be essentially impossible to to dissociate completely the psychedelic effect from the therapeutic effect. So what what we know is that essentially what you have in these diseases is you can look at the brain as a complete holistic neurocircuit. And what they're doing is in, in depression, you have a dysfunctional circuit, so a noisy system. And what these drugs are able to do are, are reset the system, right? And it's, it's really a trigger effect. It's not, you don't need to take the drug, obviously. One, one or two treatments can be long lasting. This is the paradigm shift with these medicines. They're almost like a chemical electroshock, if you will, where you're coming in, they're able to somehow reset the brain uh, into into normal function for a period of time. Uh, and then you have, obviously, a drift into dysfunction. Uh, these are fundamental diseases. You're not going to cure them. Um, you're going to, just like any other therapy, eventually need to reset uh, in this dysfunctional circuit view of neuropsychiatric disorders. So it, what's interesting is it is a trigger effect. So uh, we believe that trigger effect or that dose that you need has to be very close to the psychedelic threshold. Uh, we don't believe in, in low doses. It's clear the pharmacology is associated with sort of a threshold effect, but then it doesn't have to last long. So the real, real key to other approach that we're doing is trying to get the half-life or the duration of action down where patient compliance will be much uh, more convenient. Uh, so currently psilocybin, let's say you have to be captive for six hours before you can be released, the duration of that trip or the psychedelic experience is rather long. And one of the key aspects to making this uh, more mainstream uh, and for a patient to be able to go into a therapy session uh, and not have to stay for two hours is to engineer the the duration of action, the so-called half-life of the drug, uh, 
uh, which we know how to do, to be uh, a reasonable, manageable uh, session of, let's say, two hours. So there's no, there's no need for a long experience. You just have to reach a threshold, uh, and then you have your reset, and, and you can be released. So that's really the other goal is, one is safety, as we said, so that you can take whatever dose and frequency you need for your treatment. Uh, that is key. And the other is duration of action for compliance and convenience, uh, that you're not held captive for, for six hours or more, uh, that you can go in, be treated, and be released in a reasonable time frame. So the psychedelic, the bottom line, the simple answer is uh, essentially the psychedelic effect is key uh, uh, or, or cannot be dissociated, in our opinion. It's, it's, if, it, if it is, it's a razor's edge and essentially semantics to, to whether you can have that or not. You're working to produce next generation psychedelics. Walk me through the drug design process. What's the approach? Do you start with a known scaffold and create a library of molecules to screen? What properties do you look for in drug candidates? So the way we do this is, uh, and it's very interesting, is we look for lead chemists or medicinal chemists, drug designers. We start with lead molecules. Uh, and then those lead molecules, which are known, let's say are not selective, uh, you then need a screening system essentially to screen, design, uh, and do a molecular biology or a cell-based assay on the cloned human receptor that's expressed. So you have a system where you've got these different clones of 5-HT2A versus 2B and 2C. You express those. You then take your drug and you test them uh, for functional activity in that in that cell, and then you look for a therapeutic index, right, where it acts on the one versus the other with an index of uh, ideally a hundredfold. So that that is the process of how you screen. And very interestingly, nobody's wanted to have, everybody's wanted not to have 5-HT2A activity uh, as a psychedelic effect in all of the literature, including all the anecdotal books that were written, like, you know, from, like people like Shulgin in the past, they didn't have the molecular biology tools to do that. So what we've done is we've actually gone back and made the hundreds of known psychedelics, designer drugs, and all that that's out there, um, and created a database of activity and what we call structure activity relationships. You'll often hear people use the word SAR. So first you need to understand the SAR when you modify the molecule, what changes do what. Uh, as a basis for doing that. And nobody had actually done that before. So we've actually gone back and recreated the hundreds of known analogs of tryptamines and different psychedelic compounds and already generated an understanding of what molecular changes do what to the selectivity. So it's a very empirical process, uh, but you really, the key to the whole success is having the screening systems in place with, that are highly sophisticated. And we have really the state-of-the-art leaders in pharmacology. We've got Professor John McCorvey, who's really uh, been in this space and is a leader in the field of molecular biology and how these signals get transmitted uh, to test our compounds. And then you need experts into understanding whether that activity translates to psychedelic activity. And for that, you need some very sophisticated animal rodent models of psychedelic activity that are accepted. So that's what we have. We've got all those pieces of, you know, basic biology and an understanding of the municipal chemistry of the structure activity of 
of tryptamines and psychedelic compounds um, and, and really have gotten the knowledge of how to design a drug that does what we want. Your lead experimental therapies target the 5H2C receptor. These are in preclinical development for four indications that all seem quite different. This includes an undisclosed seizure disorder, opioid use disorder, binge eating disorder, and Alzheimer's. Is there a common link in these conditions? Um, yeah, so actually I can, I can say that that undisclosed disorder, that's Dravet. So that's, that's not a big secret anymore. Uh, that is established. The, again, we sort of approach this empirically. This is not new. This field is well known uh, with over two decades. So actually, interestingly enough, the 5-HT2C field started out in, uh, in impulse disorders at, at Hoffman LaRoche at Roche. Uh, and then migrated to become, a, the field became interested in obesity. So there was a drug on the market called Lorcasin or Belvic from Arena uh, that was positioned for obesity. So as you can see that this mechanism, 5-HT2 and 2C, is, is fairly fundamental uh, in the brain and has multiple uh, potential downstream effects. So uh, that, that's not unusual. And we've just focused on the, the pediatric epilepsies are just very exciting because that's really just emerged and is, is just a great indication, especially for a startup company like ours. So the rest of the pharmacology and neuropsychiatry is very well established. The, the, the pediatric epilepsy is relatively new. Uh, and so it's sort of a low hanging fruit for us and very exciting. Uh, way for a small company in, a, in essentially an orphan indication. That's where uh, that's where Epidiolex and GW Pharma uh, went with cannabidiol. But this new mechanism is now recognized uh, as well. Uh, FenFen actually got approved for it just recently. That's known as Fentepla as, a, as a, again an unselective compound that was removed from the market for toxicity. So we're really excited about that. But the the impulsivity disorders are, are well known and researched for uh, the prior drug that was on the market, Lorcastrin, that got approved. So, uh, in terms of, uh, it's just a general neurocircuitry that happens to to affect those disorders as well. Um, the link to—I'm not sure if anybody knows the link to neurology, uh, but the neuropsychiatry is very well established because it it basically has an effect on on dopamine. So the Dopamine is involved in impulse disorders, and of course, in in, in neuropsychiatry, everybody knows antipsychotics are, uh, are are basically dopamine antagonists. So, dopamine is the key link, uh, and if you can affect dopamine, uh, you can address a lot of disorders in neuropsychiatry. And, and the fact that in Dravet, you you did have the success of a, a marijuana derivative was does that help make the case for these therapeutics? Uh, I don't, they're unrelated mechanisms. And again, it just, it shows you can have different mechanisms that work on a disease and, and complementary mechanisms are always good for medicine. It's always good to have different mechanisms of action and, and, and it's looking very effective. Uh, the serotonin mechanism is looking very effective. So, um, it's just very exciting for, for us and for patients to have multiple options uh, to treat the disease uh, and of uh, Dravet and potentially extend it to other pediatric 
epilepsies as well, which is, which cannabidiol is done now approved in Linux Gesto. It's well. a little, it's a little unclear to me looking at the pipeline on the company's website, but are is this a single drug that you're moving in development for all of these indications, or are they tweaked differently from indication to indication? Right. That that's a TBD. Obviously, you have a lead indication, which is Dravet. And whether that same molecule is positioned will depend on the outcome of the clinical trial. So that's a lead indication. And and whether that same molecule is positioned in the other pipeline indications for the mechanism or another drug is selected will depend on the outcome uh, of those trials and, you know, where, where we get things to work. So one of the interesting problems you have when you've got uh, – therapeutics with such broad potential indications is prioritizing them. How are you going about deciding which to pursue first? Are you starting with the strongest preclinical results or the shortest development path or some other metric? Uh, So it's a combination of both, obviously. One is that um, Dravet is just very attractive because it's a small company. That's something we can do ourselves. Uh, other indications will depend uh, that are that are tough and are expensive will really depend uh, on partnering as well. So we've seen a lot of interest in therapeutic partnering in strategic indications, and a lot of what happens will be driven by you know what kind of corporate partnerships, alliances, and as at a business end uh, is as much uh, a driver of what we will do versus the science. So it's going to be a combination of science and business and priorities and, and clearly the psychedelics as well. Uh, really, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a huge potential. So I think the 5-HT2A is kind of a crown jewel uh, for the company and the 5-HT2C is, is a well-positioned, but it could be a great opportunity for doing business uh, and partnerships. You're also pursuing the 5-HT2A receptor for depression and PTSD. How does this differ from 5-HT2C and as far as its roles and effects? It's a completely different receptor with completely different indications and, and efficacy. So those are like having two different drugs. I would essentially not even, I wouldn't even see them as related. They're different pathways and they have different, therapeutic indications. So depression is really clearly locked for 5-HT2A. It's clearly the focus is the major disorder. And, and the other thing that's very exciting about it is, uh, unlike other drugs that take huge trials in phase two and hundreds of patients to show a signal, with a, with a 5-HT2A and a psychedelic effect, you really get an early clinical read on whether the drug is going to work. But in terms of targeting these specific indications with that specific receptor, is it based on existing scientific literature, what drugs are yes. used? So seminal studies have shown with PET imaging, which is a way to look in the brain of what, what drug is acting at what receptor, that the 5-HT2A receptor occupancy of this receptor in the brain directly correlates to the psychedelic experience. So we know, at least from a psychedelic standpoint, or the psychedelic effect, that the 5-HT2A subtype of receptor is the target you want to hit. So we have that in vivo data, and that, that also has been done in animal work, 
where the animal models of, of psychedelic compounds also correlate with that receptor subtype. So we've been able essentially to link the continuum of in vitro molecular pharmacology and molecular biology and receptor selectivity through use of selective antagonists and the other tools we have in the trade to dice, to basically uh, tease out the effect of 5-HT2A being linked to psychedelic activity in the human brain. There's a, a third component to your pipeline, which combines these two receptors and, and hits them both at once. This is for chronic pain disorder. What happens when you target both of these receptors? That really is uh, an area more in the, in the research level. So that is just an opportunistic case where we know that there's, there's literature evidence that, that 5-HT2C can affect pain and neurology, uh, uh, neurologic neuropathic pain. And 5-HT2A, we know that psychedelics uh, are very effective in one of the most severe forms of pain, which is cluster headache. Uh, so actually, this, this group of patients self-medicates and grow their own mushrooms, uh, and it's the only relief they can get is essentially by, by dosing themselves, uh, sort of citizen medicine. So we're just very interested in that. People have been ignoring that. It's kind of a neglected fringe uh, application of psychedelics. And so what, what we're seeing is another, another drug might be positioned for that. We're just intrigued by the possibility. So it's really, it's really the earliest part of the pipeline where we're still doing the preclinical research and exploring that as a working hypothesis uh, for another, another, uh, another component to the portfolio. And is the thought here to use a, a combination therapy or a, a molecule that's designed to hit both receptors? No, no, we, 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 we believe we, get, we would have a molecule that hits both receptors. I mean, combination developing, you always have to drug, develop one drug and get it approved. It's very hard to do, develop sort of a combination from the get-go. So again, it, we do have molecules that have uh, both, both components of the activity. It's a matter of deciding and tuning that to be safe, to not have 5-HT2B, and opportunistically essentially position that uh, if we can show uh, strong efficacy for a good compound. And how soon do you think you'll move the first program into the clinic and what's it going to take to get there? Uh, that compound slated, the, the lead compound, which is BMB 101, 5-HT2C, it's, it's a, got a grant, granted patent. We're very well positioned with actually IP and composition matter uh, with that, which is really exciting out of that license. Uh, and that's scheduled basically around end of Q1 uh, 2022 next year to enter the clinic. We're planning on uh, moving that. And essentially, it's, it's going through pre-IND, uh, the IND enabling work that you need to, to enter first in human studies, which we plan to conduct uh, XUS actually uh, as an IRB in Australia. And why XUS? It's uh, just it's faster and less onerous, especially for a small company, than the the standard FDA process. So it, it streamlines things. It uh, lets you move faster. And and for a nimble company, I won't say for any company, things have been very slow getting through the FDA these days. In the current environment, it's 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 pretty slow. Uh, so we want to you know move move as quickly as we can uh, to to enter patients. Gideon Shapiro, Vice President of Discovery at Bright Minds Biosciences. Gideon, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.